0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on the show today, I talk with economist and writer Allison Schrager about her wonderful new book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, and other unexpected places to understand risk. Just a couple of announcements, though, before we get started. The City Journal team is very sad to announce the loss of a dear friend to the magazine and to the Manhattan Institute, the great... Indeed, legendary criminologist George Kelling, the originator with James Q. Wilson of the broken windows theory of public order, which is something City Journal has written about quite extensively over the years. You can find a comprehensive piece on George Kelling on the City Journal website by our own Heather McDonald, talking about his contribution and uh, his life. Lastly, uh, let me also announce next week's episode of 10 Blocks, which you should stay tuned for. Kay Heimwitz, our longtime contributing editor, will join me to discuss her latest piece from the magazine. It's on the epidemic of loneliness afflicting not just Americans, but people in developed societies across the world. I'm sure you'll find it interesting. That's it for now. After the break, we'll start my conversation with Allison Schrager. We hope you enjoy it. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining us in the studio now is Alison Schrager. She's an economist, a personal finance specialist, a writer at Quartz, and co-founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners. You can follow her on Twitter, at Allison Schrager. That's S-C-H Schrager. And she's here today to talk about her fascinating new book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. It's published by Portfolio Books. You can find it on Amazon, and we'll link to it in the description. Allison, thanks for joining
1: us. Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Now, your book is about risk management uh, and how people working in various surprising fields exemplify the concepts of financial economics. What was the most surprising example of this in your research?
1: Um, I think it must have been the surfers, You know, I I had a hypothesis going in that people really understand risk better than we give them credit for, and that risk is fundamental to all markets. But I didn't expect big wave surfers to be so intellectual about it, or that they have a conference, an annual risk conference, where they really are discussing the same issues that you see at financial economics conference full of Nobel Prize winners. They're really debating the same issues, and the intellectual tenor is definitely equal to it. And And
0: you you attended some of these... uh, or one of these I went conferences. to one
1: and it's a trip being there because you know, you're on the north shore of Hawaii and you're in this windowless conference room in a hotel and it's all these like dudes with like board shorts and they're tan and they're all wearing like flip flops. I mean it looks cooler than a pension conference, but then they start talking and there's slides with numbers and there's debates about who bears the regulatory burden for systemic risk and all of a sudden it's like you could be at a pension conference.
0: Well, wow, and the big risks there, I guess, are you going to be crushed by a wave if you handle it incorrectly? and
1: Yeah, dying mostly. Yes. But, I mean, much like, you know, in financial markets, it's possible to use technology to lever up and take bigger risks. And when you do, you might pose risks to others. And that's why, one of the reasons why they have this conference.
0: I see. Now, one of the uh, depressing stories you tell in your book, and it involves in your research in a brothel, Mm -hmm. a legal brothel, uh, you you talk about the girlfriend experience um, and how this explains why legal brothels are so expensive. Could you elaborate on it a bit? Because that captures something about risk.
1: It does. So legal brothels are a lot more expensive because effectively they're offering, what is risk-free sex? Um, You know, it is first of all like if you're going to visit a sex worker in the illegal market, which is a much larger market in America, you know, you'd pay a lot less, but you risk a Robert Kraft situation, um, or possibly uh, a disease, or you could get blackmailed, or you don't know what's going to happen. So, but if you go to the bunny ranch, you'll pay a lot more, but you know there, you, there'll be no repercussions. The women are screened for diseases. Um, you, you know, you can pick amongst the different women. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, but you pay for that, again, and it's all legal, so you don't have to worry about law enforcement. And even the most popular service there in its own way is a, it, what you pay, what is the most expensive service, too, is also a risk premium. It's called the girlfriend experience, which is, you know, rather than just have sex with a um, sex worker – She'll talk to you, you'll go to dinner, you'll, she'll stroke your hair, talk about your feelings. You, she actually connects with you. She gives you this sense of intimacy. Of course, it's false. You're paying for that. But it gives people this sense of intimacy. And I think, you know, there's, there's a push certainly in the UK, and it already is the case in Scandinavia, this idea that sex work is this terrible thing that needs to be criminalized. And unlike here, they prosecute the customers, and I think that seen as this enlightened view is like these women are victims, so let's go after the people who are exploiting them. But I think when you go to the brothel and you actually meet the customers, you realize how inhumane that is, too, because, you know, you meet all kinds. You meet all kinds of sex workers. You meet all kinds of customers. But a lot of them, the customers at least, are just really lonely people. A lot of people crave intimacy but fear it or are incapable of it for whatever reason, so, what the girlfriend experience does, certainly within the bunny ranch, is it gives you this sense of connection and safety anyway, even if it's false, although you pay a large premium for that.
0: Now your your book has a fascinating chapter on irrationality. Uh, that's a big field of economic research mm-hmm. these days with behavioral economics. How are we irrational when it comes to risk and um, you know, in this context, you profile a very cantankerous figure, the poker player, <laughs> yeah. uh, Phil Helmuth,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or Helmuth, however you pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, to talk a little bit about that, because I, I found that very interesting.
1: Well, so there's a couple of different uh, behavioral biases that the behavioralists have uncovered. The big one is loss aversion, which is like traditional economics assumes that we're consistently risk averse. Like we prefer, and this is the foundation of financial markets, that we will, like you, in the brothel, you pay to reduce risk because, you know, would rather avoid it. But they found that when faced with loss, people actually take more risks because people fear loss so much they become risk-loving, like they'll take bigger risks to avoid loss uh, when they're down but uh, risk-averse when they're up. And you can imagine in poker this is a huge issue because when you're losing, you play a lot more aggressively. And when you win, you play a lot uh, more carefully. But really, like your odds of winning or losing an individual hand are completely independent of whether or not you're up or down. So you shouldn't do that. That's irrational. That will, on average, lead to worse outcomes.
0: So you got to take your emotions out of it as much as possible.
1: Exactly. So what was fascinating about Phil is he's such an emotional guy. I mean, this is his brand. I mean, he has YouTube montages on his website, if I'm having... temper tantrums. He is not someone you would think of as in control of his emotions, particularly when he loses. You know, you'd think, who else would suffer from worse loss aversion? But he doesn't because he's spent, I mean, he's one of the most successful poker players of his generation. He's
0: made millions.
1: Yes, and he's won a lot of very important tournaments uh, like the World Series of Poker. Um, But it's because he keeps his emotions in check and he's trained himself over years and has a lot of tricks to behave more consistently.
0: Now, um horse breeding is another subject mm-hmm. in, in the book. And it shows how the financial economics idea of diversification, which we, we often hear a mm-hmm. lot about these days, is at work outside of your retirement account. So could you describe what went on in the horse breeding uh, industry and, and how that reflects a diversification?
1: Well, or is a lack of diversification. Lack of
0: diversification in this case. Yes.
1: Yeah. So... Um, you know, in horse breeding, it used to be traditionally you would have these gentleman breeders who would breed horses with the intention of racing them. And so their objective is make a horse that will do well at the racetrack. But then uh, it's still a long shot. I mean, the odds that a horse is going to win the Kentucky Derby, you know, it's like winning the lottery. So, you know, you you can do some things, but it's, you know, it's really a crapshoot. So, uh, for a lot of years, horse breeding became a really popular tax haven where, you know, because the odds are you're going to lose money. But then after 1986 tax reform, it killed the tax incentive to, or it killed it as a tax haven. So a lot of the investors left. And everyone else left standing was bearing this huge amount of risk because it's expensive to breed a horse, to train it, and then the odds are it's going to never make significant money at the racetrack. I think it's like 8% of horses will place in a stakes race. So um, the incentives changed, where to reduce their risk, uh, breeders started selling at the yearling stage, So when it's one year old. But the problem is, you don't quite know uh, whether a horse is going to be a good racer at one year, because it hasn't started running yet.
0: What, when do they start running? Two um, years, three they years? They start
1: running some races at two years, and the big races, like the uh, like most Kentucky Derby racers, are three or four years old. Uh, So three or four years is where the money is made. They kind of started to – you have some – but even at two years, you don't have complete information. At one year, really, all you know is who its parents are. So that – put you can imagine what this did is like parentage became super important. And, you know, while a mare can only bear a horse at a time, a stud can – nothing's stopping him from breeding hundreds of times a season. So you ended up with this huge premium on a small amount of studs. It's actually the superstar economy apparently even applies to horses. And uh, but that also means that you had a lot of inbreeding, right, because you have this um, very small amount of studs who are fathering all the future generations. So you've seen this big uptick in inbreeding, which, you know, has consequences because inbreeding is a lot like under diversifying your stock portfolio And that, you know, you might get lucky. You might, you know, because I learned that like secretariat level of racehorse is sort of a genetic freak. They have all these quirky things and they all line just so. But the problem is is you breed, secretariat was not a a successful sire because those weird quirky things, if they don't line up just so, you end up with this sort of not great racehorse. So you just have this really wide distribution of things that could happen as opposed to if you crossbred more and bred horses, you know, not just with the same forefathers, you would probably have something that typically works better, although you give up that sort of upside of the next secretariat. And it's, it's very similar to investing. And in that, you know, everyone thinks they're going to pick the next Apple. But if you just bet on one stock, most of the time, you're going to do worse than if you just bought an index fund.
0: Right. Um, which reflects your own background, right? You worked for an index fund company, I did. yes.
1: I did. Uh, an index fund company that's quite militant about efficient markets.
0: Now, Hedging and insurance are often conflated in people's mm-hmm. minds, uh, but they're distinct ideas in mastering risk, right? Yes. Uh, could you explain to our listeners what the difference between those two things uh, are? And how do you how does one apply insurance in one's career? or life without taking out an insurance contract?
1: Well, they said there's three different ways you manage risk. There's diversification, which we just talked about. And that's right. also different from hedging. And people often confuse all three of these. So diversification gives you this optimal, if you diversify properly, you have the optimal risk portfolio, which means you're not taking any more risk than necessary. From there, you're supposed to hedge. And hedging or insure. Hedging is like this balance between risky and risk free. So if you were investing in the stock market, you know, you'd know you have a stock index fund. You would hedge by going a little bit into bonds. So what you are giving up is upside. So if the stock market goes up 20% one day, and you're only, you only get 10% of that, say, if you're only invested partially in stocks, and you gave up some of that upside by investing in bonds. Of course, if the stock market crashes, you list that. So you give up upside in exchange for reducing downside. Insurance is a little different in that you you pay someone and they take away your downside for you. So it'd be like if the stock market if you had like portfolio insurance, although that's controversial, but just bear with me, you you would say, all right, if the stock market goes up, I keep it. But if the stock market crashes, you will give me a certain amount of money. So you keep the upside, get rid of the downside. Of course, you have to pay a fee for that. And whether or not that fee is worth it is where insurance gets complicated. Now, I mean, you could think about this is true as well for um, your career, because your lifetime earnings are an asset in the same way your investments are. And so one of the best insurance methods for your earnings is education, because if you think about it, you you see that earnings volatility is lower if you're more educated. The odds of being unemployed are much lower. Even at the peak of the recession, people with a college education had a much lower unemployment rate.
0: That's people who are graduating. Yeah. Yes.
1: Well, assuming you graduate, and it's a reasonable university.
0: Right. Um, another distinction you make in the book uh, is between idiosyncratic risk and systemic risk. Um, what are those things exactly? And uh, you know, how do you use in the book? I, I found this interesting. I think our listeners will as well. Uh, hanging out with the paparazzi <laughs> to describe that uh, difference.
1: All right, so idiosyncratic risk is in financial markets is the risk that individual stock will rise or fall. So it's like if you buy Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg says something horrible in front of Congress, like your stock's going to tank. Now you can reduce idiosyncratic risk by diversification, like we were talking before with the readers. Mm -hmm. Um, Now you can imagine the paparazzi. So idiosyncratic risk is just any risk that's unique to individual asset. And the paparazzi face a ton of idiosyncratic risk in terms of themselves in that if you're a paparazzo and you're wandering the streets of New York, the odds that you're going to get that money shot happen upon Gigi Hadid doing something really crazy and getting that exact right angle of her is pretty random. So they face a lot of idiosyncratic risk on their earnings. So they manage it the same way uh, anyone does, or you would in the stock market. It's just they form these alliances Mm -hmm. of other paparazzi to share tips, sometimes royalties, depending on the arrangement. And that reduces their idiosyncratic risk. Of course, because you get so much extra money if you have an exclusive shot, that they're always cheating on their alliances. They always fall apart. But that's not even the worst risk for them. The worst is The systematic risk, which is the risk in stock market that the whole market will crash, like it did in two thousand eight. So that's always a much harder risk to manage. So um, what you, the only thing you can really do in finance is find these rare and often very valuable assets that provide. They're called like a low beta asset, which provide a good hedge against the stock market crashing. So something that goes against it doesn't vary much with the stock market. And to some degree, the paparazzi do this, but they have to seek out these very sort of big event photos. So, like a low beta uh, celebrity photo would be like the picture of a new celebrity baby. But I mean, they have they'll invest like two or three weeks stalking a pregnant star, waiting for that first baby shot.
0: And so the systemic risk for the paparazzi was technological. It was the change in the market.
1: Right? Yeah, exactly. So it's the market actually goes in cycles. There was something called the gold rush era, which is with the Britney Spears, Lindsay Lohan heyday, where they would get, you know, like $15,000 for a picture of Lindsay Lohan getting coffee. Now that kind of picture will get $5. And that reflects, one, the recession when people stopped buying glossy mags, and two, moving online, where now everyone consumes their their celebrity photos on websites, but just destroyed the market for them. So that's the systematic risk that they're having much more trouble managing.
0: Now, your book is aimed, uh, it has a kind of practical aim, which is Mm -hmm. to make us better risk takers. Uh, How we define Mm -hmm. risk, how we measure it, um, how to identify the kind of risk uh, we we face. Now, there are programs uh, to teach people about financial planning and Mm -hmm. budgets out there. Should we we have similar initiatives, in your view, to start educating people about smarter risk taking. And, and for mm-hmm. an individual, what, you know, what is your best advice in terms of thinking about risk?
1: I think, the, I think it's recognizing that risk is important. But there are techniques you can do to increase the odds that risk will go well. I mean, I think, you know, better risk literacy certainly could be included in financial literacy. Right now, for some reason, it's not. Or even, I think, in high school education, there definitely should be more of a premium on it. We don't really—people always complain people don't learn statistics. But really, the foundation of statistics is probability theory, basic probability theory, which is often not taught. So it's able to think probabilistically. There's evidence that when you train people, they actually can do it. You know, we always complain people don't understand probabilities, but we don't really— Teach them. Um, and certainly, even you think of your typical financial literacy class where they'll t- teach you about compound interest, but they don't mention you get a higher rate of return if you take more risk. Like that trade off seems to be missing. So I think it certainly has a place in all levels of education and in financial literacy. I mean, I think it's popular. There's a, a curious backlash, which I really don't understand right now, against mindful spending and financial literacy. The idea being that because there's so much inequality. Life is just unfair, so just screw it, by coffee. And um, you know, don't bother learning basic financial literacy as because you're not going to get rich anyway. And it's just madness to me. Like, I think you know, it certainly is not going to make you Jamie Dimon, but it's also going to really help you from being poor.
0: Right. Um, thank you very much, Allison. It's, it's a fascinating book, so don't forget to check it out. It's called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. You can find it on Amazon. We'll link to it, as I mentioned earlier, in the description. You can follow Allison on Twitter at Allison Schrager. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal. And always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks very much, Allison, for
1: joining us. Thanks for having me.